and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my inevitable co-host, Teo Zavadia. Teo, thanks for coming back for yet another week. Uh, And coming back was uh, the the trick, because I had to drive up to Seattle and back down all in one day to take my daughter and her friend to the Taylor Swift concert. And Uh, that was a Did you attend as well? I did not, I, which yeah. I wish I had. I, I got to drive. I was just the chauffeur, but I um I did get to see my friend Derek Guter, mm-hmm. who was the event manager for Gen Con, hung yeah. out in his gaming pad and dreamed that my gaming pad could somehow look like his. Uh, but what was what was awesome was just seeing like the crowd around it. Like it was a bit like there was a year at Gen Con when there was a uh, football game and Gen Con. And you got to see the two crowds mix. So there were Mariners fans and Taylor Swift fans arriving at the same time, baseball and and you know, Taylor Swift. And it was great. So you'd see like people like all in glittery, awesome costumes and, you know, like Barbie lookalikes and a lot of really cool stuff like that. There was a really neat vibe to it. And, and then, then the there Mariners. was a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> but it, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that the Gen Con story was the best because it was a Colts preseason game and Gen Con. So we had cosplaying people and there were football fans with fright wigs and the face paint of the team, like on the phone saying, You can't believe what I'm looking at right now, like <laughs> as as they're all painted up with yeah. the uh Indianapolis blue and silver, I think. Uh and yeah. it was it was quite a quite an ironic moment, let's say. I was walking with a friend of mine, and he said, you know some of these jocks are saying, didn't we beat these guys in high school? Why are they still around us? <laughs> that was very funny. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we, we're not that different we when we really look back. at it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but we do have a lot to get to today, so let's jump into it, including some listener corner missives. First, from Megan J via Patreon Discord. How do you respond when the players bite really hard on a hook that you didn't intend to be a hook? <laughs> in one of my campaigns, a player has become fixated on a reference to an ancient deity that was really only intended as some throwaway background material. Now I feel like I need to include this ancient deity in a campaign intended for a non-theistic setting, i.e. Ravenloft. And that's a, that's a really good question. Great question. And it, it comes up more often than you would think if you DM. And for me, it depends on the situation. If I'm running a one-shot, if I'm running a timed event of a very specific adventure where I need to stick close to the text, uh, then I'm just going to say, listen, this is not a tree that you want to be barking up right now. Uh, that that usually, it's usually a merciful thing where yeah. people could just like, okay, we'll, we'll get to where we're supposed to be. However, if you can see a clear path forward, or if you are running a home game or an adventure that you created and you have the flexibility to look ahead and say, you know what? I was expecting them to do this, but they're really, they're really, really interested in this. Let me just move this piece over here. And now they get to follow their own thread. They get to feel like they've really achieved something. And all I'm doing is moving up one piece to another piece. So. Yeah. yeah, I had a nightmare of a time once with uh, running a table for kids. They were, they were in middle school at that time, and this was like a neighborhood group. And this one girl, her dad decided he wanted to play. 
and and he played like a lot of AD and D. So we we were all playing, and and it's just the beginning of this adventure. And, and I, I don't even know why this adventure has a tavern scene, but it starts in a tavern, and it describes that it's a two story tavern. And so the, she says, you know, can I go to the second floor? And I'm like, uh, it's closed off because I just didn't want to waste time there, right? And she says, yeah. uh, you know, I, I try to figure out why it's closed off. And I'm like, oh, you just see like a a, a staff person. She's you know cleaning up upstairs so i was trying to convey it's closed right for cleaning she wanted to murder this employee of the tavern because clearly something nefarious is going on and just kept going and going and and the the father meanwhile is horrified at all the terrible things that his daughter wants to do and i and i I took way too long to say stop there's nothing happening right and i'm because i tried to stay in the game and in the world and 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 I think I was thinking too much about how the dad was reacting. It took forever. And finally, I was like, there's nothing happening here. Like, we need to go to the next part of this adventure. Yeah. But right. but there is and also the rather situation. Rather than spending 20 minutes doing it. Yeah. Right. You could yeah. have just said, there's nothing up there. Yeah. 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 And it's, now and that it, you mention it, in, in adventures that I've, in adventures that I've run where there have been, like, kids and parents, so many times, many more times than I would have assumed, it's the adults who are going off in the wrong direction rather than the kids. That's and I don't know if it's it's because of a play style or trying to like show the kids how to to think. But, you know, it's generally the adults that are like, oh, I need to investigate <laughs> this. And the kids are like, no, let's just go to the let's just go to the dungeon. And oh, but no, we need to stock up on supplies, mm-hmm. or we need to ask the the sheriff about. <laughs> and and generally, it's the kids who are correct um, yeah. that just want to get to the adventure. So that's that's odd. I love the stories of like you know murdering grandmas, where like they just you know play the barbarian and want to murder everything they find. That's always great. But yeah, I think there are those times yeah. when like like this situation that's described here. This sounds really cool, the idea of going off of this mistaken understanding, because it, it sounds rich and fun. And sometimes that's the best thing, right? You know, you describe the NPCs in the tavern and you do some throwaway and they go for the throwaway. It's like, well, I guess that's what has the plot points, because you're clearly more interested in this NPC than the other ones that I was interested in. Move it over there, develop something, tie it into the person's backstory or whatever, right? Because it's obviously got some personal interest level. So, yeah. Yeah. For, for the, in the Ravenloft example, if I'm remembering correctly, Ravenloft is more about the dark powers that are sort of behind the scenes. And so it, it could be that these, these dark powers are over the, the years, over the centuries, given form from time to time in a specific deity mm-hmm. uh, that's really just them putting themselves forward as something so you could you could do something like that and then reveal that as you go as the characters investigate this you oh and even further back there was this other deity that's sort of similar um and then you know slowly reveal that there's no deities it's just <laughs> these horrific powers that are behind the scenes pulling strings yeah yeah, for sure. Um, ne- next, we have uh, Kurt Ugel via YouTube, who says a uh, question. 
I have two players that asked me to allow them to use long-played characters. They started at level two and went to level 20 over two years. In a new two-player story, as the past group never gelled and allowed for fulsome character exploration. I warned that to do this successfully, the players would only use the bare-bone concept of their characters and that everything, including background and character story revelations, would all play out very differently. Have you ever had a similar requ request and what advice would you give, please? Uh, yeah, I've had this happen on a number of occasions where people, we finish a campaign and they want to keep playing those characters. And it's not unnatural for people to want to dwell in the what they know or at least to start from what they know and move forward. So the first question I would ask these players is always why. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to continue playing these characters? And the answer to that question will then uh, give me a, a ground on which to start asking more questions. So the first question is why. Then when they tell me, I can do two things. One, I can figure out if I'm interested in doing what they want. And two, I can figure out if a role-playing game campaign is really what they want. Because what sometimes people want when they have inhabited this character for so long is they want to explore this character more. And a role-playing yeah. game is not necessarily the best way to do that. Uh, fan fiction would be better to explore the past of this character than try to move forward with some another version of the character. Now, if if the player just loves the concept that they put together in terms of the class and the race and, and all that, then sure, we're, it's going to be completely different, but here we go. Uh, so that that's, that's just sort of the yeah. vague answer, but you really need to know why they want this because if you don't know why they want to do this, there's a good chance you're going to end up moving in a direction that's either not good for them or not good for you, or maybe even not good for both. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and Kurt had added in a reply comment, my best two players love their characters so much that he asked to play them again as a restart in a collaborative setting that more fulsomely incorporates their backstories and NPCs into new and shared locale. Most of all, they want the missions and themes that would suit their characters as those were often rejected by other players in the previous group. And mm. and yeah, and so I think that, you know, anytime you have players that are really excited to do some of their characters, it's cool. But I would want to talk through those, um, the parts that might be a little sticky, right? Because because there might be some repetitiveness that there are some expectations they have. And if you're really doing a restart, then things might go differently. And you just want to make sure to, to stay on top of that so that you don't end up suddenly creating a disappointment because they had such firm expectations of what this restart would do but but like i you know i've got a couple of characters that i've played in adventures league that i will take into streams very often and just use them at whatever level they might be and i just sort of pretend that this is sort of like flashback or something you know um mm -hmm. because i like those characters and i like i like playing with them and exploring them and and i don't you know, I leave the past behind or in the future behind or whatever, and I just focus on this particular piece um, and pretend everything else is sort of backstory the way you would if you just made it up and never played them before. Yeah. Right. And and if the care if the players do like the concept, 
it can be fun to explore that concept in a different way. So mm -hmm. if you have your right character that sees the future uh, and it came worked out one way, then play it in a different way. You can use the same concept, the same voice, the same mannerisms, all that stuff that the actor likes to do, but yeah. just put turn it on its head and have have a new spin on it and see if you can have fun as you did the first time, but with a different, um, the same character traits, but a different story that goes along with it. Yeah. Next, Michael Kremen via the Patreon chat. Quick question. During an interview, it was mentioned that there is data showing most games don't go past lower levels. I think tier two. How do you guys know that? Just curious. Great show. Happy to be a Patreon. Teos, I'm going to let you take this away. Uh, you know, I don't remember the exact dates, but there are at least two major Wizards of the Coast surveys that took place. Uh, I think one was 3E and one was during 4E that showed strong data behind this, right? Um, and, and this was communicated by Wizards of the Coast. Um, I know Mike Merles talked about it once in one of his development posts during D&D Next. Um, and, and there were some other discussions of them as well. Um, and, and, and one of the surveys was sort of like a, in the past, we didn't do the best job of surveys. We really dug into with, with experts to find out how people play and here's what we found kind of things. Um, and since that time, we see a number of repeating survey questions where they also ask about this. And I think it's very telling that they keep getting these answers because they keep sort of narrowing the focus. And when they do high level, they find a sort of way to do it, but but not they're not giving you a 20 level experience with an adventure they publish for a number of reasons, but including that they just don't see those play levels. Um, we also saw the D&D Beyond data that has been shared. Um, where it shows like how what levels are are created right that, and 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 you and you know there's some people who just create a level 20 character because they are uh, testing out their build but even with that people are making lots and lots of low level characters and that's what they're really playing yeah and sales numbers uh, also on the DM's guild and sales numbers elsewhere really uh, reinforce this and obviously there are people that want high level content yeah. high level uh, adventures yeah. and that's that's fine to want it um and it's just a market reality if you will that making yeah. that you're not going to make the the sales that you would if you made lower level content that more people are interested in in having and also People that use level 20 content are generally experienced game masters. And we know that most experienced game masters like to create their own stuff too. Yeah. So that's another uh, reason that this doesn't sell as well. And it is possible to make a niche out of it, right? So like 2C Gaming makes a lot of products that are for high level play and they are very well received and, and you know, they do well because they're really focused on it and really trying to make a name for themselves in that area. But in general, most people we know who create, you know, if they have a low level adventure and they have a high level adventure, it's the low level one that'll sell way, way more than the high level. And and, and I don't know anybody who says otherwise of the designers that, you know, in, in our kind of close group that we talk to often. I mean, it's just it's not a great way to make money. It's, a, it's kind of a way to be sad because you also have to do so much more work to think through all the things that high level characters do. 
Um, and even DMs aren't super comfortable with it. So like an adventurers league play through Baldman games, it's very common that, you know, that there are a lot of DMs that want to run low level play or mid levels, get to the high levels, fewer and fewer DMs feel comfortable running it, even if they've been running for years for Baldman games. And so that's also really telling that just the DMs feel like it's more of a chore, which is unfortunate. Um, and I think historically there's less practice. Uh, playtesting going on with at the company side with high level play true of kind of all rpgs that support levels and so a lot of times in addition that is the roughest part of the addition unfortunately and that that leads to all these factors as well and last but not least falcon neil via the patreon i started playing in 1976 and have been playing actively for every edition change since to me, there are some very valid game reasons as opposed to financial reasons why additions have to change. There have been basic flaws in the rules which degrade the game. Rules can get stale. There can be book bloat where rules are spread across too many books. Power creep can happen from unanticipated synergies. Also, the game can get complex from so many books, so you need to re-baseline to get all the rules in one place. Is it just inevitable that every so many years, something will force an addition change? Do you feel that 5e had reached the point of needing an update? Whew, big, big question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you pull together everything that we've been talking about for the last you know, year and a half, two years, you could sort of know our answers on this already. And the first part of my answer is to dismiss business reasons in any analysis is almost impossible because I think that's the main driving reason behind past edition changes, not just in D&D, but in countless role-playing games. We see movie reboots, franchises rebooting constantly, uh, video games coming out with new versions or new, uh, new reboots, new uh, sequels, whatever. Uh, so the business reason is overarching probably always going to be the driving force uh what do you think Tayus? yeah absolutely um i always think it's interesting that the the number of versions for Shadowrun and D, D are basically the same you can quibble on a few little variants mm -hmm. you know what is an essentials what is a you know the light version Shadowrun role-playing game i forget the name right now but you know it's just because what happens is the traditional model is you know you sell your core book people are super excited you start selling source books and some people want a particular source book, but not 100 percent. And as you continue to create down the line, your numbers just drop. So at some point you have to relaunch. 5e was probably the first RPG, major RPG that seemed to avoid that for quite some time where you had Jeremy Crawford saying years in, hey, you know, we are selling more than ever before. It's the only one. And I don't think anyone knows why that is. I mean, you can say 5e is a great addition. Sure, but it kind of broke the rules for some time, but time is inevitable and <laughs> it's cruelty. And eventually, you know, you yeah. just don't need that source book and you don't need that thing and you start tiring of it. And what 5e is, is in a very interesting place because it's the most popular version, best selling, best business angle of any edition ever. It's really precarious to try to tweak it, right? And you can see how the people at Wizards would would have all this reticence around making big changes because if you mess with it 
and you release something that's a dud, I mean, you know, why did you do that? And we know from every single edition change of basically any game ever, but especially D&D, that anytime you say new edition, people go nuts, right? Some people go like, you're changing everything I love. I hate this or, you know. And so, so it's almost like you can't win, right? Um, if you change editions, getting people to switch is really difficult. If you stay the same, then you're prolonging all those problems that were just mentioned by Falcon Neil because you've got more of that. And, and that's what we're seeing, right, is, is we're seeing a timeline where we're maybe getting to where a number of people would like a new edition, but 5e is so good. And D&D is going to give you sort of more of the same, which prevents that switch effect, but tires you a bit. And, and there's no perfect answer to it. It's just it, it is what it is. Um, I mean, my perfect answer, Sean, I've said that here, is I would have done 2024 as an anniversary edition, 99% cosmetic change, and just a few little fixes, tiny fixes, to just buy time while still selling books and pumping up the brand or whatever, and then launch more of what would feel like a 6E later. But that's not to say that would work. That's just, you know, my, my dream, my scheme. But yeah. uh, they've got rooms full of people to think through that. <laughs> Yeah. And doing it that way, and I agree, you know, doing it that way is better, but to do it that way, you can't announce a new edition because announcing a new edition brings up all of these issues, whether on the positive side, if people are excited for it, that's great, but they're, they can't buy the new edition when you announce it. They, and if they're upset about it, they stop buying everything, start playing other games, get, you know, remove themselves from the hobby. So yeah, a, a nice 20, you know, 50th anniversary, not even the same rule set, right? A 50th anniversary board game, a 50th anniversary, anything other than redoing the game. Do, do I think it was necessary? No. Do I, uh, game wise, rules wise, Mm -hmm. I don't think it was necessary. I think there are still, I think I don't think we reached the point where people found enough problems in mass with the rules that mm-hmm. they are, were ready to switch. And that was because of the slow release of content. Uh, that I think had a lot to do with it. Some people were very upset that we weren't getting more material more quickly, but the sort of one adventure per per year or, you mm-hmm. know, one adventure and then one very small supplement per year was working really really well for wizards and i think among many other reasons that's why we saw that steady increase in in play there weren't we didn't get rules bloat too quickly so people could still access the game more easily and this push at the end to put out more and more content i think is might have been done on purpose a to get more content out there and b to make the game more bloated and so that more people would want a refresh and yeah. so if, if someone did that uh you know kudos more power to you very you, smart you yeah. outsmarted me <laughs> uh yeah and and, and everyone but yeah. it's it is inevitable uh and at some point whatever 5e 2e 5e revised whatever we end up having it known as there is a sixth edition out there somewhere. Yeah, um, it it is pretty much inevitable. Uh, assuming that 
they they being the owners of the indie whoever that is whether it's wizards or hasbro or some other company in the future mm-hmm. will want to make money so it will happen yeah yeah absolutely it's a, it, you can't not have that happen because no game can continue selling forever and it's true of anything right if you buy a pair of sneakers you probably won't buy the same pair of sneakers for the rest of your life over and over again you'll change it up and so if you're that sneaker brand you want to be the one changing it up so that they stay within your area right so again the game has to evolve we've seen that right we would not want to buy most of us 2e right now right we would we would say well i would need something a little more modern than that well that's what people will say of 5e someday right mm-hmm. it's true Thank you to all our listeners and all our patrons out there for those questions. And now we will get to our news and commentary section, starting with one of our own listeners who has created a dungeon generator. JL, who uh, is a Patreon supporter, wrote to us with this. After listening to Teos and Sean review the random dungeon tables on a recent episode, I took some time to build out random dungeon generator that accounts for previous roles to determine future ones. The way it works is pretty simple. The roles you make early impact the roles after, and you lock the values as you scroll down. The dungeon type defines the scope of what roles you can make and so on. So there are 15 dungeon types, 175 unique dungeons, around three or 4,000 events based on those dungeons. Monsters, defenses, and treasure are impacted by the original purpose of the dungeon, as well as recent events. So this is is amazing. Amazing. Uh, You can find this tool at www.tileforge.com backslash generators backslash dungeon dash generator. Those are forward slashes, but yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm slash happy. (laughs) But yeah, and uh, there are a bunch of other awesome generators there, including uh, they just added an NPC generator that's also really cool. But the dungeon generator is so perfect because it goes into that discussion we had of, you know, mm-hmm. what if this operated in a more you know interesting way? And also that idea of like, how much should you be trying to do on paper versus digitally, right? It can be really mm-hmm. different in that way. And, and yeah, really, really cool to see the tool and, and think about how that compares to the written dmg yep so thank you uh jl for that and jl has a patreon as well so Mm -hmm. you can support and follow their work there you know gen con's coming i've heard uh as i go and try to figure out my schedule and (laughs) try to avoid conflicts of meetings and games and uh that's turning into its own special nightmare Mm -hmm. but i'll tell you what if you're going to gen con you're going to have a blast because we have all sorts of events, including ones uh, for D and D. You want to you want to take over here? You did the legwork yeah. on this one. There's a little bit of a mystery because you know you'd think Wizards sort of you know back in in January was saying like oh we're going to be at conventions and we're going to you know tell you what we're doing and then there've been a few things that you're kind of like you know you, you you had a good intent but you haven't really deployed it right where it's the uh, learn to play events in stores that was a little rough. And now, you know, we kind of know what the D&D events are at Gen Con through Magic the Gathering's blog entry last week or Baldman, or uh, Gen Con's blog entry last week. And nothing really official from the D&D side, but 
and and it's kind of seems like most of the energy is on Magic the Gathering, which is interesting. Uh, but I guess it is 30 years of Magic the Gathering. And uh, you can, of course, have the Baldman Games events to play, which is always true. Uh, so there's a link in our show notes and also on those blogs that leads you directly to find all of the possible games you can play. New this year is a D&D Live, a giant-sized adventure event on Saturday. Seats up to 500 includes food and drink. I'm entirely sure what that is. You know, are you just watching people play? Is it interactive in some way? Not clear. Probably it's a live play that you watch. Um, there is a Wizards of the Coast food truck that is part of the sort of outdoor area that Gen Con is setting up. Wizards of the Cones. And there there are treats inspired by various D&D and Magic the Gathering personages. So there's Tasha and Drizzt, you know, names stuck on a food item. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. fun. Uh, Wizards is sponsoring the cosplay contest. And so there is an extra prize category beyond normal years for the best cosplay featuring an iconic Magic the Gathering or D&D character or monster. And then on Thursday, there's a D&D movie screening. And I am told by all the sources I can reach out, there is still going to be a D&D &D Summit gathering at this con. When will D&D &D tell us anything about it? I don't know. <laughs> but in theory, at some point, people will be invited to it. It may just be whoever happens to be standing outside the door whenever they finally announce it. I don't know. I, you know, I know it's tough at organizations to make decisions. But this and this is the kind of stuff I deal with in my day job, you know, all the time. But boy, someone just needs to say, hey, in January, you set up your Gen Con plan and you communicate it in I, February because that's when people need to know to plan to attend these things. Yeah, every convention is obviously different. And, you know, sometimes I'll meet somebody playing D&D &D and I'll be like, hey, I'm going to this convention. I'm going to Winter Fantasy. You could buy a badge and get into games right up until oh, yeah. the, the day it starts or a local convention. Gen Con is not that beast. If you know, I'll have people say, Oh, you know, I two weeks to Gen Con, I'm kind of interested in maybe going. I'd be like, well, good luck finding a hotel in Chicago and every event is sold out. Uh, and that was, it's been so for months and you can excuse the people that don't understand how big Gen Con is and what the timing is, but a lot of these groups, they know this. They've yeah. been to Gen Con over and over and over again, and it's just it's doing a disservice to the fans to not have this information out there sooner, so that people a know what they're going you know to do when they're there, and b just know what's going to be there. Yeah. It's it's a uh, it's sort of mind-boggling to yeah i mean event registration was in may hotels before mm -hmm. that yeah those are the dates and, and whatever internal squabbles are going on in your organization you need to come up with a plan before that and get those and it, honestly it's better for everybody and this is something i often try as a right. consultant to tell organizations like yeah it's super painful but you will be better off telling everybody internally sorry the gate is closed we're done you want to come up you want your team to attend Next year, you know, you want tell me for next year, but this year's done. Like we've decided, we've communicated, it's over. And you should really force yourself to just do that and get those plans out there because right now, nobody's gonna, very few people would even consider suddenly going to a Gen Con, to, to, to Gen Con because of something DD is doing. 
And even if they did, they're probably already booked or they can't find hotels or any, and, you know, it'd be a nightmare. And so you're just going to disappoint people about what they yeah. can't do, <laughs> can't get into, can't attend. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. And for the summit, I mean, I don't know, you know, what what the, you know, you need to, the summit already has a little bit of an issue of that it needs to target the right people, I think, for future events. And, you know, how would D&D even know who's attending Gen Con to even invite the right people at this point? So, mm. yeah, it's there's an old question in like organized play D&D world, which is what's worse, a bad D&D game or no D&D game? <laughs> and I've had vicious arguments about this and it sort of fits here, right? What's worse? Yeah. No Wizards of the Coast presence or a bad Wizards of the Coast presence. Uh, and it's a shame we, because I know they, I can't even imagine how much money must be spent on just the things we mentioned. Right. And so when you misspend like that, it just hurts all the efforts, right? Because then what ends up happening is there'll be like no budget for packs or no budget, budget for who knows what else, where it could be applied well. And you can get a lot done with small spends if you do them smartly but if you blow them all on something that then you can't even do the small smart spends anymore because the budget's gone and, and yeah <laughs> yeah and i'm hoping i'm praying that it will be great and that mm -hmm. you know wizards will look look good and draw in new yeah. people and heal some of the the damage from various uh catastrophes along the way uh but knowing about what's going to be there is the first step. And hopefully we've done our part now in spreading some of the what's going to be there. And we hope mm -hmm. that it's enjoyable. Yeah, hopefully it's good. Yep. From Gen Con to E1, Hasbro has closed the D&D E1 office in the UK. We've talked about E1 many times before. It is the entertainment arm of Hasbro. They worked on the D&D movie. Uh, they've worked on other entertainment projects. So in the UK, E1 operates their theatrical operations. It was releasing 35 films a year, less than a decade ago. And last year, it released four. And there's also been a decline in revenue uh, on that. So the E1 also maintains a UK TV and home entertainment presence, though it's not clear if this will remain or will be pulled along with the D&D E1 uh, offices there. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this all happens at a time when Hasbro is trying to sell off E1. So they're maybe trying to lighten the load of what it is um, and, and the cost basis of it. Uh, Lionsgate has been signaled as a possible buyer. But, you know, this is a place that Hasbro purchased E1 in 2019 for $4 billion. Um, it sold some parts of it already. Um, and, and you know, and it clearly hasn't gotten what it wanted out of it. And, and maybe smartly is saying, hey, you know, this if you look at the business now and you see what people are doing in streaming, what people are doing in movies, this is a really uncertain time. Uh, it's really hard to make money there are really big players there and to become a big player maybe wasn't the slam dunk that one might have thought of in 2019 so maybe it is the right time to get out uh it's still painful <laughs> still still doesn't sound like they got their money's worth four billion dollars um and 
in the era of movies, you know, movies always sound so big and Hollywood feels so big. But this line from a New York Times article on video games was really interesting. And I've heard variations of this before. So this is perhaps stronger than previous ones. The video game industry now accounts for significant chunks of the economy. It is larger than music, U.S. book publishing, and North American sports combined. Microsoft's game division and Activision Blizzard each make more money annually than all U.S. movie theaters. So, <laughs> yeah. The only thing that we're going to get to the sports uh, portion of our show. The only thing that surprised me was throwing in North American sports yeah. because the NFL is massive. The NFL prints money and yeah. billions and billions of dollars. And uh, so being larger than that just on its own is is shocking. And add all of those things. You know, book publishing, I'm not surprised. Music, the way, you know, we've we've gone, not surprised. Uh, but wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and, and this may be revenue versus profit, right? Because I think sports, one of the nice things is sports is very reliably profitable for those entities. Um, right. So, yeah. Other news, we have Paizo closing its Redmond office. Uh, Paizo, Paizo President Jim Butler had a blog update covering topics from the union to the ORC license to reorganization between the teams. I guess several teams have been merged according to Butler's blog. Customer service has been put into sales, organized play into marketing, marketing into sales and operations. Uh, Butler said that, yes, that teams had not been working the way that they should previously, and now that everything should be uh, more smoothly flowing. Um, the creative team also saw a merge. This helps them create different games, like the upcoming board game that they're working on, as well as all of their role-playing game products. Butler also said that uh, almost all of the staff has been remote since the pandemic, so that they're closing these offices and moving their warehouse in order to consolidate and save money. I mean, it makes sense from a number of perspectives, including that, you know, when the union was being formed, some of the big discussion points there were around how it was a very unhealthy environment, both in the way that managers and staff interacted and in the physical things like how the carpets were and the ventilation systems. So maybe it really is one of those like, yeah. let's just stop ever. Let's never come back to this office and find better ways to work online, which is what a lot of role playing game companies are doing anyway. Right. Is they, they, they aren't big enough to be in an office. And so they, they work online anyway. And, and Paizo may be shrinking a little bit. So that may make a lot of sense. As someone who's worked remotely since the last century, since the last millennium, yeah. technically. Uh, I can say that it saves a lot of time, money, mental effort, uh, mental stress, lots and lots of things as long as the right person is doing the right job. Uh, it, yeah. it is it works out very well. It can work out very well. So, yeah, it's been Hopefully it works uh, for them. more than a decade for me of being remote, decade and a half, something like that. Cobalt mm -hmm. Press is hiring a media production manager. They want to produce and maintain original content for YouTube and TikTok, among others. There's a job posting at coboldpress.com with the details. This is a remote, speaking of remote, this is a remote full-time position. The salary, 
a little bit on the low side for the industry between 47 and 57,000. But again, remote can definitely help uh, offset some of those costs. So if you are a media production manager or going to play one on TV, you can <laughs> go to the Cobalt Press site and, and check that out. Any thoughts on that one? No. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the Cobalt Press jobs in general have been on the lower side of the industry comparatively. Um, you know, not just even comparing the wizards. Um, so, but, but I mean, hopefully that's where Valiant will help them change that. Mm -hmm. Last but not least, we are getting to the crowdfunding and in the releases crowdfunding in August on August 7th is shadow of the weird wizard. We have been talking about this, uh, previously. I think we even interviewed or someone interviewed Rob a long time ago mm -hmm. on the show. Um, so Rob Schwalb will be kickstarting Shadow of the Weird Wizard, which is an enhanced and updated version of his Shadow of the Demon Lord role-playing game engine. But this one is suitable for all ages. Uh, for us, this is a must-back. Must uh, there is a link in our show notes to the Kickstarter, so you can be notified when it actually launches. Uh, I'm, I couldn't be more excited what about this. What else you got here? Yeah, and I just want to say, like, one of the things that's cool is the, the tweaking of the engine I'm really interested to see because I already love Shadow of the Demon Lord. It's one of those, you know, if I want to think of, like, how would I design an RPG, that's one of the ones that I would pull off the shelf. So to see it, you know, get to a, a slightly different version, a slightly different take, that's super exciting for me. Um, also yeah. coming is Jungles of Kwa <laughs> the campaign guide. Uh, this is a 300-plus page campaign guide for fifth edition explore a wondrous world inspired by latin american pre-columbian cultures where an isolated civilization clashes with the horrific yet alluring jungles that surround him and it really is this idea of like you're sort of in this bubble surrounded by a uh, dangerous jungle and it looks really cool the art looks amazing the uh, kickstarter ends august 20th we have a link in the show notes or just search for jungles of k-u-a-u-h-t-l-a um and then last is where evil lives the mcdm book of boss battles for 5e this launches on august 1st provides 22 drop-in dungeons with dynamic combat encounters for 5e pretty cool and that's directly on backer okay kit. and that's backer kit via uh instead of kickstarter yeah interesting awesome and there is our news for the week now we're going to get into our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons. We are looking at Chapter 6 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. This chapter is called Between Adventures. So running games can be intimidating for new DMs. It can be intimidating for even experienced DMs. We get down into the nitty-gritty of combat and making sure everybody's having fun during the adventure. And we finally get to the end we've successfully run this adventure and everybody's happy and we take a deep breath and then there's that awkward question of oh boy what now <laughs> well chapter six has you covered or does it we're about to tell you right now <laughs> so what what's your experience with between adventure play over the years you've been playing almost as long as i have what sort of your oh, over the editions you know what did you do how has it changed 
I mean, for a long time, I didn't do anything, right? Like, it was just literally, like, you played, and I would decide what the next adventure was, and I'd bring it off the shelf and run it. But uh, I think really around the 3E era, sometimes late 2E, like, 2E would end up enough subsystems in it, but sometimes the player would say, like, I want to do this thing that I found in Dungeon Magazine or something. Like, okay, let's figure out how to do that. But it was sort of player-driven. Um, but the rules really baked it in in third edition, this idea of you can craft magic items. You can research, you know, to make scrolls, scribe scrolls and potions and, and all sorts of things like that. And it started kind of creating those ideas. And there were things before that, like, you know, building a castle. But the rules are sort of, I didn't see a lot of use of them. Like, like I would just do it on my own. I would make a castle and just say to my DM, like, I'm making a castle. And they'd be like, what? And like, I'm making it. Like, okay, put it over there. Now back to the game. <laughs> but it was third edition i think that really started cementing that i don't know if you feel that way no i feel pretty much the exact same way and this this chapter covers two different well more than two but essentially two different tiers of between adventures mm -hmm. one is for the dm saying how do you link adventures together to make something more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And the second part is what do your adventurers do between adventures and how do you figure that out and how do you make it fun and how do you gamify it? And there is some interplay between the two, but even there's this sort of weird start and stop. It's like, okay, here's how you link adventures. <laughs> here's how you put everything together. Here's how you foreshadow. And then suddenly boom it's like okay recurring expenses uh wait what just happened uh, <laughs> and it's such a small chapter so it's, i think it's, it's, it's the smallest chapter. chapter in the book so it's it's interesting that they were just like eh, yeah, so let's too. call it between adventures yes <laughs> yeah and and so as as teos has, has said sort of old school D D, while obviously some people had linked stories and ongoing things for many players was just oh we just finished white plume mountain and now the next adventure is tomb of horrors and oh yeah you gained levels and and uh yeah you were in town but now you're you went from the dungeon to a boat on your way to the next dungeon and that's all the transition you got and and people were okay with that uh for the most part yeah because it was for a lot of people the story of your character wasn't romancing and it wasn't even growth in the sense of what we think of narrative growth of, of a character. It was more what level are you? What spells do you have? What magic items do you have? How much experience do you have? Okay, let's go. Yeah. And you can still play that way. And in fact, some people want that and trying to shoehorn in overall story and character growth and those sorts of things are actually a detriment to to the the game rather than a positive for it so this is a, just one more reason why a session zero and communication is important so you can ask your players do you care what you do between adventures if you don't care and i don't have this grand story that i care about telling we're just going to move from from sea adventure to adventure and we're not going to worry about this downtime or things happening between adventures 
But if you do want to, and if the players want that, then this chapter does begin to give you an overview of how to do it, why to do it, um, and and other bits of information. You know, I was thinking a lot about this chapter because it's short. You know, it's like I could read and just think back, like, you know, how how did they approach this chapter? And 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 it it really mirrors what I think a number of people have been saying on our Patreon Discord, where they've been saying, you know, this is an edition that when it was written didn't know how popular popular would be. It didn't know what kind of play it was supporting mm-hmm. necessarily. So it tries to do a little bit of everything. It tries to be open to 1E style, 2E style, 3E style, 4E style, you know, however you want to approach a campaign. And so it may be that, you know, they were trying to write a, a chapter that somebody who wants to be in a tacticals minis game focused on combat could enjoy, but someone that is writing a very open kind of style of play could also enjoy. And so I, you know, I think that's why sometimes things are more like thematic and conceptual or encyclopedic, but they're not prescriptive, right? Like, like if I compare it to say like Mike Shea, he might arbitrarily say, follow this rule of doing the following three things, you know, name three things, do put four monuments in your adventure, you know, do this thing. And, and often, and, and he will often say like, I'm just choosing a number, adjust it, but, but think of, you know, come up with your number that works for you. And this doesn't do that, I think, because it's trying to be serving to all these different styles. So it doesn't make any hard recommendations, right. which makes it hard to then implement it. And, and, and I say this, I'm long thought that I'll finish now. If you look at their adventures, their published hardback adventures, don't do all these things the way that they're talking about it, right? Because, because there is no particular prescription or formula that the this DMG is giving you right yeah and you know it's a lot of the the information in this chapter and in other chapters seems to be from we're just going to look back at what's come before and describe it so mm-hmm. example like using an overarching story is one of the first headers and they say this rep- section represents a couple of examples of overarching stories which have over the years fueled many classic D&D campaigns. So it's like we're just going to look back at the rod of seven parts yeah. type of adventure of which there was one. And we're going to say the quest of many parts. Uh, and so they give that as an example of you have to go through this quest, either gathering things or just gaining enough levels in order to be able to put together the plot of the villain, understand it, get out in front of it, and then finally defeat the villain and win. Mm-hmm. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is how stories go, right? You go all the way back to yeah. Joseph Campbell and the, the hero, was it the hero with many names or the hero with no name? I can't remember the book. Uh, where it's like, there is this storytelling process and you can see in many stories over the years from many different cultures that this pattern is followed and you can write a D adventure even though you have more than one hero that pretty much follows that same pattern yeah 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 it, it is it is an interesting concept to to do it this way and and again i, I wish they came back a little to the to the why of it um they try mm-hmm. to they try to be in between, you know, like they're not super prescriptive, but sort of like, hey, here are examples. But 
really to step back and say, the point of this is to create, the connective tissue creates a stronger experience when you have it, right? Because, and, and those of us who grew up with like modules, you know, you'd run Cult of the Reptile God and then you'd pick another thing that was sort of similar level and you may or may not weave it together. And it's cool, but it's a little jarring to go, you know, from, I don't know, a jungle to a desert, right? And, and so having that connective tissue is time well spent to create a nice feeling of a larger campaign, a larger world, even if you're just taking adventures and stitching them together. And, and, and why do you do that? How do you do that? Like that would be a little, there could be a little more here around that, but it, it's fine. <laughs> yep. The, the second example they give of using an overarching story is called, well, they call it agents of X and it has nothing to do with Twitter. I've, I've come to learn this just in, uh, <laughs> nothing to do with Twitter. What, what letter are you in, in this to, one? Uh, you Sean? build the, why <laughs> that's just <laughs> constantly why i ask myself uh so you can build a campaign around the idea that the adventurers are agents of something larger than themselves and this ties back into those factions that were in chapter one and you sort of move up the ranks and get missions to do things based on what this agency what this faction wants you to do but otherwise, it's very similar to the previous one, yeah. right? Quest of Many Parts. You're, you're still moving forward. You're still getting quests based on information and growing in power. And the other thing is, I mean, I'm trying to think, like, what is a like an adventure, published adventure that really uses this Agents of X? And I don't, I mean, certainly there are things where the factions are involved, but there aren't a lot of examples of this. So it's interesting that this is like the second example. To me, what would, what would, what I expected to read was the wheels within wheels, right? So that like whatever you did mm -hmm. is the preamble to the next thing. And so, I mean, that's what, like, if you think of like against the giants, right? Like you, you take care of the hill giants and, ooh, you find a, a drow in the basement and you know this points to something but you've got to go to the frost giants to figure it out and the fire giants and then you really get to the drow and then from the drow and eventually you're at the demon web pits and you know but it's it's that idea of the layers are peeled back each time and and you can kind of do that right like you can just tack a thing in at the end of your adventure and transition to the next right it's not a bad technique it's an easy one <laughs> Yeah, in, in some ways, we've all become experts in storytelling mm. because we consume so much story, whether it's books or video games or television shows or streams or just our daily lives where we hear people tell stories. And so we learn a lot about storytelling and we draw lessons from that. And I've seen a lot of people who are experts in certain kinds of storytelling try to shoehorn their lessons from those media into role-playing games. And a lot of times it works, mm -hmm. and sometimes it just doesn't. <laughs> you think of something, I'm watching the show Dark right now on Net, mm. from Netflix. Really, really good show. Uh, time travel. Uh -huh. And following these characters through time, some aging, some moving through time. Mm. And it's it's fascinating to watch. Trying to do that in a role-playing game, 
even a non-fantasy role-playing game would be so, uh, so hard. So on my um, end, it would take a very, yeah, but I just watched uh, the the uh, Christmas episode, Christmas dinner episode of The Bear season two, um, and it is unbelievable. It, the the easy summary is dysfunctional dysfunctional family almost constantly arguing over one another with multiple sort of agendas and plot lines, all kind of in a deliberate mess <laughs> and mm-hmm. kind of revolving right. around the kitchen and the meal. And I mean, I, I couldn't help but think as I usually do, what would the role-playing game equivalent of this be? And, and, and yeah, I don't know how you do it. You can't do it to that level. It's just too, uh, too different a medium, but, but amazing. <laughs> yep. And in, in video games, I think of video games where I'm playing uh, Breath of the Wild right now mm. because I'm always one game behind mm. uh, in any franchise. And I, I I'm almost have paralysis now because I just don't know what quest to do next. Mm. Because there are like 20 different quests going on all at once. And I'm like, should I, I'm here, but I could go there. But if I did that and I just can't even figure it out and it's all on a nice map for me. Uh-huh. And I shouldn't have this sort of paralysis. And so trying to duplicate that in a role-playing game where there maybe isn't a tidy map and there isn't reminders that you could just flip to really easily, um, that tends to not work well in in role-playing game, tabletop role-playing game form. So you have to be very careful about something that's cool and in storytelling purposes, not working in a role-playing game setting. Along these lines, what did you think of the planting adventure seeds and foreshadowing sections? Because I personally like thought those were pretty good as, as concepts. Um, they were. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it says you can make a campaign feel like one story with many chapters by planting the seeds of the next adventure before the current one is finished. This technique can naturally move whoops uh the characters along right. to their next goal and so right you talked mentioned against the against the giants mm-hmm. uh vault of the drow demon web pits that's exactly what it did at the end of the hill giant adventure you see stone giants and then at the end of the stone giant adventure you see frost or fire and then it moves up yeah. through the ranks until you get to you meet drow right and the fire, that's a big shock and so the at the fire. end of each mm-hmm. at the very exactly so at the very uh end of each adventure there's a hook for the next one and rightfully they give this advice with this caveat don't sabotage your current adventure with too many or obvious links to future adventures very smart yeah um you want to make sure you know if you're going to give a very wide open sandbox type of adventure great uh but just remember that finishing an adventure finishing a thread can be fun and rewarding and can be a nice rhythm before you move on to the next one, i.e. this uh, Breath of the Wild issue I'm having. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's I think that's very great. Uh, and it, it harkens back to me the sort of open world concept of how, how do you want to run a game versus you might also call it the sandbox yeah. versus having sitting rails in a sandbox. So you're on a rail, but you're leaving room for this these rails to move through your sandbox or being in a sandbox, but the sandbox is on rails. 
So you're moving yeah. around this within the sandbox, but the whole setting is also moving forward at the same time. And there's a there's a fun discussion that you can have about that within this planting adventure seeds. Uh, I didn't expect them to do it in this chapter, mm -hmm. but I think at some point sort of setting out how a different campaign type might deal with moving between adventures would have been helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, it, it makes me think your discussion of sort of that sandbox open world. The other part of a sandbox is the case where it doesn't matter in which direction you go, right? Which goes to that Breath of the Wild type concept where you're like, you know, we have five hexes that we haven't explored adjacent to us. And it doesn't matter in what order you do them. Uh, there are things there to find, and mm -hmm. that is fun to uncover them, but it doesn't matter. And when we played um, Paizo's Kingmaker, uh, a, a adventure path, you know, it was, it was a neat sandbox experience in many ways, but sort of didn't matter. Nothing was, there were a few things, but very few things were connecting between it. And that made it non-interesting, right? And so these things like planting seeds, foreshadowing, I think are also helpful as design prompts for us as DMs or writers to think through to say, well, there should be some connectivity here, right? Because I'm creating this ex this linked experience so I should have this. And there are so many bits of advice that could be there. Like I think of Temple of, of Elemental Evil, where in the moat house, uh, there is uh, the NPC that has a letter that kind of reveals information that you're not going to deal with for such a long time that you may just mm -hmm. completely forget it and never do anything with it because it's sort of too early. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. What's the character's yeah. name? Lareth yep. the Beautiful? Is that the... Lareth the Beautiful. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the note really hints to the end of, of concept, but but it's it's a, it's too early for anybody to ever remember it. And, and by the time that the rest of the supporting information comes along, you're not going to remember that that note was there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. There's a lot of pacing uh, information that might serve well to be put here as well as it appearing in other places. Another thing is like experience points versus just leveling based on story or based on milestones, because you may have a great final battle planned. And if you don't pace it right and you give experience points along the way, you may soon find out that, oh, I thought they would be level 11 when they reach this final battle and now they're level 14 and my you know cr 12 monster is just not going to cut it uh now or vice versa mm. or they got there too quickly and now what do i do so it's you know all yeah. of this ties together and especially if you have like you know the the big reveal has been that there will be a beholder right and so everybody expects a beholder, but then you you're like, oh, man, a beholder is too easy for them, right? Or a basilisk or something. Some of these creatures that sound great yeah. mythologically, you know, the cave of the Minotaur, and they finally get to the cave yeah. of the Minotaur, but they're so high level. You're like, oh, what am I? I'm gonna have to build the most custom Minotaur because there's no way this is gonna work. Mm -hmm. And then you have to open up your Forge of Foes copy and use all that advice. Plug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, but um, there's been some nice. fun discussions on our Discord about XP and, and, and lots of people who do use XP and others who don't and why. 
Um, but I really like this next section on campaign tracking, which is clearly a Chris Perkins strong suit. This is something back when he did that DMs uh, column for 4 He would have so much great advice and talk about his notes and his campaign that he would take and what he would capture. And I think it influenced a lot of us. Like Certainly for me, it helped me get more organized around what I wrote down when I ran campaigns. And, and, and I use that now of what I note versus what I let the players track, um, what I give to them as prompts, um, how I think through what's coming next, the NPCs they met, right? I'm, I'm a lot better at finding, streamlining my approach to, to what information I track and how and, and how I move it across. I'm more diligent about it at the end of a gaming session, sitting down and writing it down because it'll pay off so much better if I do it that night versus two days later when I finally remember to do it. So I just, you know, forcing myself to do that. And then sending out uh, a, a sort of adventure log, it mentions an adventure log here as an episode guide for your campaign. Mm -hmm. Sending that summary to players is great because they can they may refer to it, but forcing myself to write is what helps me really think through what happened in that session so that I'm more prepared for the next one. And that's one of the best things I, I, I do for campaigns these days is to force myself to create that summary. Yeah, I'm I'm a terrible DM, and I should feel bad about myself. But I'm terrible at tracking things. Yep, I'm terrible at tracking things. Roll twenty or online tools were actually nice mm. because they sort of had a place where I could type as I went. Yeah. Uh, because I'm I'm so focused on running the game and being there in the moment that to stop and write things down seems like I'm you know, not giving the proper due to the players. And so yeah. I'm, I'm reading this campaign tracking section with campaign planners and notes and handouts and how to do all this stuff, calendars and toolboxes. And I'm like, are we just making adventures all wrong? Should, <laughs> what do you should mean? adventures be soft? Should yeah. adventures be soft cover workbooks mm. that there are sections within that, that we can just as game masters write in mm. and take notes and have it. So it's much easier to track everything within the actual book that you're using. And would people still buy it if it did it that way? Because that would that's what it would take for me to take good notes. That's what it would take for me to do all of those things that this chap this section calls for in keeping track of days better in making notes more of planning ahead and making those connections uh, yeah. resound more to the players and stick in my mind better as the game master. You know, I think that what I would love, what I found works best for me is that I, no matter what the adventure looks like, I create a Word document where I outline what will happen in this next session or what I think may happen because, <laughs> you know, players. Um, but I will outline what I think is going to happen. And then I print that out. I unfortunately have to murder a few trees for it. Uh, and then I have th those notes. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a page. Sometimes it'll have something else like an you know, extra thing on a second page, but it's almost always just one page. And then what I'm doing is as I'm running, I'm playing off of that script, if you will, but because it's already a piece of paper that's just like a trash piece of paper, I make notes on it. 
And that's where I write down because it's it's already you know not the adventure; it's just a piece of paper that I supplied for myself. It invites me to write on it and track the NPC they met or the interesting thing they did, because then that is the main piece of thing that I'm going to hold in my hands when I do my notes. Right. So so the one leads to the other. I go from the adventure to the outline, from the printed outline and my notes that I scribbled on it in horrible handwriting to the session report that I'm going to share with my players. And so what I would love out of a product would be you give me the adventure and then you give me the outline for sessions, but that I could easily edit it mm -hmm. to what I, you know, because you might do half of a session one time or whatever. So easily edit that and then go to, you know, to, to that format, because I think that the creation of it is sort of helpful too. I don't know, but, but I'd love to see someone experiment mm -hmm. with that as a format. That'd be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Just that huh. it came up because like you said, you do all this work. I'm not doing that work. I'm too lazy. I've got other stuff going on. It's just not going to happen. I will print out on a sheet, the monster stat block. Mm-hmm. And that I, I will that. refer to and write on. And um, those are some things that but... I think would be good tips here. Like, like uh, it's funny, you know, this is, there's this foreshadowing and so on, but there, there isn't anything here about really prep, right? How to prepare an adventure mm -hmm. uh, or how to, um, yeah, how to run a session in, in any kind of real specifics in, in this whole book. And that's a thing to me that, that could have maybe been here um, because having monsters in a format that you can write on is so helpful that you can scribble out their hit points that you can uh, change up a power, write a monster feature, add something else that all happens because you print it. Right. And, and highlight the thing that you know that you want to use on the monster that that is super helpful. And, and I think would have been good advice to have in a DMG. So that takes us through the DM portion of this chapter shall we save the other for next session yeah yeah i think we can certainly talk about downtime and, given our background so let's do that a, a different time and and this recurrent expenses and downtime because it's such a fascinating topic and we can maybe get into a little more how to and you know one thing sean that came up um i think in a couple of patreon um, uh youtube comments this week were folks saying you know, I'd love you to get to the end of this and tell us what tools you think do these topics better or what um, or how you would approach these topics. Uh, and that is, you know, we try to do that as we go. But but part of it is I don't know that there is always an, uh, a better answer out there. There's just you kind of choose your poison as to what you'd write in a book. Um, but for downtime, I think we can certainly talk about it that way. Yeah, we may have done a little bit of work on that. Uh, yeah, I was listening to those as well. And th those comments about, mm -hmm. could you tell us what's good, what resources we could go to? And I want to reiterate that this, what we've been covering, the Dungeon Master Guide, isn't bad. Yeah, It's just limited by page count, by word count, by time, to not necessarily cover everything that a new game master might need to think about. Uh, so we will try to think of other media out there that covers it. We already talked about Mike Shea mm -hmm. uh, and his Lazy Dungeon Master stuff, as well as his other stuff. We talked about Chris Perkins, yeah. who did a blog series 
where he covered a lot of this stuff in much okay. better detail. So we know he can because <laughs> we've seen him do it. It's yeah. just it didn't make it into this particular book. Uh, yeah. So there are tons of places out there, blogs and and books and and everything uh, that you can find more in-depth information on these topics. And it, it is interesting when you talk to anybody who has played in a Jeremy Crawford home campaign or a Chris Perkins home campaign, they will all say they're incredible. Like they are so good at their craft. So th there's no shortage of skill in that department, right? And I think it is the, the when you're trying to imagine what should be in this book for the audience with limited page count, it is really hard to, to think through what to put in there. And so you end up with something that's necessarily gonna be imperfect. And we may say, oh, the 4E DMG and DMG2 are so good. And I say that all the time, but they're not without flaws. And, and, and in some ways it's that maybe they just got lucky to write the book in a way that really happened to work that edition. And I think fifth edition, I, I really like the comments that people have made uh, about our shows that say, you know, maybe 5E didn't know what it was going to be when it was being written. And then that's probably somewhat true, you know, it made it all the harder. Yeah. yeah. But maybe we can think, think too about some other point. like source books and things like that, that, that uh, different guides and so on that, that are useful um, and suggest some too. Sounds good. Well, I want to thank you, Teos, you, for coming on to the show yet again and uh, enlightening and entertaining us. And I want to thank our patrons out there who keep the lights on. Thank you to our Master of Dungeon supporters. Thank you to our Master of Realm supporters, who I am looking at a list of right now in our show notes. And thank you also to our Masters of the Multiverse. Those patrons get a shout out right now. We're going to go from the bottom up this time. Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Simone Say, Kama Krishna, Andy Shockney, Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Falcon Neal of the Many Wonderful Questions, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Math Magician, Chad Lynch, Jeremy Klingler, aka DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Sean Hurst, Paige Lightman, and Ben Heisler. The Mighty Jerd, Andy Edmonds at nerdronomicon.com. Seth Eckel, Darren Chandler, DM Chad, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you so much for being masters of this particular multiverse. If you like the show, please do consider becoming a supporter at our Patreon at patreon.com slash mastering D&D. Also, if you do listen uh, via podcasts, you can uh, give us a review, which helps boost our ratings. And if you listen on YouTube, you can subscribe and leave your comments there. Where can people find you, Mr. Abadia? Ah, well, uh, I just released uh, a video on the lore of Neverwinter. Thank you to the, there are only a few people that really dig these videos that I do where I walk through the um, Neverwinter MMO and showcase what they have. But I've been going through the Drow Underdark series and, and got a couple of nice people just saying like, when's the next one coming out? And that's very nice because I do enjoy doing them. 
Um, so it's nice to know that there are a handful of people out there who really dig them. If you do, check them out. I try to go through the game and I show off like how gorgeous it is because the game is often so beautiful and I want to kind of capture it. I want to don't want it to just die digitally someday and we'll never can see it anymore. Um, so I try to capture that and then think about, hey, if I were DM, how would I use this, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so it's been a lot of fun to, to do those videos and the latest one is all about the mic and it's So you can find that on my YouTube channel, which you can get to through alphastream.org. Sean, where are you hiding? On X? I I am on X. Uh, <laughs> he said for the 20th oh, time this God. week. Uh, 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 at Sean Merwin, the podcast is also on X, at Mastering D&D. Uh, we're also on Mastodon. Uh, the show is on Dice Camp. I am on Tabletop Social. You can join our community and ask questions via our Patreon, and you can always leave comments on our Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, Teos, we have now figured out how we're going to link our stories and adventures together. What are we going to do now? Well, if you're rebranding to be Y, I'm going to rebrand to be exclamation point. Mm. Nice. So that could be, be Dungeons exclamation point dragons. 